chapter 3. So if you want to find your ways there in your Bibles, um, I'd like to pray for us as we look at that section together. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy and kindness, help us to receive this hard piece of your word as, as good for us. Give us faith to believe that your, your love and care for us uh, lies behind it. And so by your spirit and your word now, bring good to your people, we pray. Amen. Amen. So one, one of the more thought-provoking parables that I've shared with you guys before is, comes from an author named Doug Mendenhall. And I, I want to share it with you again today as a way of getting at what I think is the big question that Luke chapter 3 raises for us today. Uh, Doug writes, Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I said, sure, love to see you, Jesus. When will you hit town? I mean, it's Jesus, you know, and it's not every day you get the chance to visit with him. It's not like it's your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh your having to move to the sleeper sofa. So that's when Jesus told me he was actually at a convenience store out by the interstate. I must have gotten that Bambi in headlights look because my wife hissed, what is it? What's wrong? Who is that? So I covered the receiver and I told her Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. And she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way that marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. My mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes. So Jesus wouldn't think we were were reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been half watching, but I could still hear screams from our bedroom. So I turned off the reality show it was tuned to. Plus, I turned off the kids set out on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus. The illustration's a little dated there. Now six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for a good first impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the the yard actually looked great thanks to my long hard work, and so I let it go. What can I improve in four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was a bunch of catalogs tied to recent purchases, so I stuffed it back in the box. Jesus doesn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back in and picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why did we buy so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes ago. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog. With one minute left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. And then the doorbell rang. So what does it mean to get ready to meet Jesus? Really? What if what one writer calls the great visit were to happen this week or, or even this year? What would it mean for you to get ready to welcome God. Um, This was the man we know as John the Baptist. It was his whole life's purpose, right? 
getting anyone who would listen ready to welcome the king of heaven who was coming to establish his reign upon the earth. So, let's, let, let me give you some backstory to Luke chapter 3, which is all about John the Baptist. We last, we last met John the Baptist in Luke when he was the baby in Elizabeth's womb that leapt for joy when Mary, the mother of Jesus, arrived in the room. That was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He was the one that his father insisted on naming John, even though that wasn't a family name, at the angel's directive. But now you fast forward about 30 years from that time, and we find that the same baby John has now grown to be a man about the age of 30. And we pick up the story of his arrival or his, his public ministry in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So what Luke is doing for us here is he's pinning down um, the events of this chapter to a pretty precise time in history. Historians tell us it's about 26, give or take a year AD, that all of these events, these personages lived and ruled. So Luke is assuring us here, this is history, not just story, right? It happened precisely right then and right there. Politically, he starts with the big dogs and he works his way down. From Caesar to someone named Licinius, that we, all, we know almost nothing about that guy. But they are all important folk. They're movers and shakers politically. The kind that live in palaces that are fit for kings. He ends the list of historical markers with the top Jewish religious leaders of the time, Annas and Caiaphas. But then Luke's chronicle takes an unexpected twist. Away from the palaces and the temples and the places of power, to a nobody in the middle of nowhere, to a man named John in the wilderness. Look again at verse 2 with me. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it says, the word of God came to John, in the wilderness, not to Caesar in his palace in all of his finery, not to Annas with his pedigree in the temple, to a nobody in the middle of nowhere, Luke tells us. And that should sound kind of familiar, maybe like an angel coming to a child in a feed trough in a tiny village called Bethlehem. Um, this is God's modus operandi in Luke. This is, this is how he comes to us, through the humble. And Luke fixes our story in history by means of the power brokers of the day, but then he turns 180 degrees in the opposite direction and he points to John in the wilderness. This is where the word of God comes. And John's purpose was to get the people ready for the coming of the Lord who is Jesus. One writer calls it the great visit. I love that expression. So John's a herald 
that goes before the visit of this great king we know to be Jesus, right? He is kind of like the sergeant at arms um, of the House of Representatives. When the president's about to enter the room to make, say, the State of Union address, he stands and he says, Mr. Speaker or Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. And the idea is that everyone would, in the room would be made aware that the President is entering the room and they can appropriately honor the entrance of the President of the United States of America. Right? So John, like the Sergeant of Arms of the House, he's the herald who waits right at the door and when he sees the President is about to enter the room, he announces presence. But, but John has a much higher calling than the sergeant of arms, right? He wants everyone to be ready for not the president, but the king of kings and the lord of lords, the judge of all the earth. And if the kingdom, and thereby the king, is near approaching the door, then John says, we better get ready to meet him. He's about to enter. John is answering then for us today that question that we started with. What does it mean to get ready to meet Jesus? And he's answering it, as we'll see, with one word, repent. Okay. Repent. Matthew sums up John's message in this brief phrase from John's own lips in Matthew chapter 3. John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Um, Author John Ortberg kind of warns us about some misconceptions we might have about what, that, what he means by repentance. He says, repentance is often misunderstood. For many people, to repent means to feel really, really bad for sin. It's a term of emotion. He says, I remember as a teenager attending Christian camps where leaders were masters at producing this kind of experience. Seven days of sleep deprivation, a diet of sugar and fats, relationships of incandescent intensity, radical self-disclosure, a hundred fireside verses of kumbaya, and a speaker who told stories of one of last year's campers who died in a car crash on the way home, and people were ready to confess anything, right? They stood and confessed in tears to total strangers. The feelings were sincere, but they often didn't produce lasting change. And John says that the kind of repentance that we need to have when the Lord is coming is that it must involve change. Our repentance must be fruitful, he says. Look down at verse 8. He says, to the crowds coming to him, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is how we welcome Jesus with fruitful repentance. It's what Luke describes rather poetically and prophetically as he quotes the prophet Isaiah from some 700 years before as he anticipates John's ministry. He says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Pastor Gordon MacDonald writes about this. He says, repentance is like filling the valleys of our lives and leveling the hummocks and mountains of our lives and straightening the crookedness that sin has caused in our lives. John tells us we welcome Jesus by repenting. He says, 
all of us, all flesh. This pathway of repentance unto salvation is for everybody, for all peoples. But this morning it's good for us to ask, what exactly does that mean? What does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? That's what the crowds were asking. Look at verse 10 with me. The crowds asked John, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and we, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So John, when he calls people to repent, he calls us to change in a way that people can see, right? That's observable. And he gives some very specific guidance to three different groups that come to him and say, what must we do? And, and that really is the question of a truly repentant heart. What shall we do? Because repentance is more than sorrow for sin, though it, it is that. It is forsaking and obeying. Professor Wayne Grudem defines repentance this way. He says, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And I'll add, by His grace. Because I think there ought to be grace in repentance, right? John is telling us the single most important thing we can do to get ready to welcome God is to repent, to confess our sins, to turn to God for grace, to transform our lives and truly change. And so the crowd says, what then shall we do? And to the crowds, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So he calls them, repentance, he says, for you looks like being generous to people in need. Even though likely these people were not very wealthy themselves, they had two tunics, maybe an undergarment and an outer garment. And he said, if you've got that, you give one of them away if someone has none. They should give one of their two shirts to someone who has none. The fruit of repentance is generosity towards people in need. To the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you are authorized to. And tax collectors were notorious, despised thieves. They would collect beyond what they were authorized to do to line their own pockets. And John says the fruit of repentance for them is financial integrity. They don't take advantage of others for personal gain. And soldiers come, and he says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Because soldiers obviously had power um, to extort money from people under their authority. And John says repentance for them means contentment with their wages so that they aren't tempted to oppress others for their gain. Now, as you hear John speak directly to those three groups of people, did you hear any common themes? It's interesting. Um, in every case, he's concerned with how we handle our money, especially related to those in need. If you repent and follow Jesus, you are never to take advantage of people in need. 
Instead, you are to care for them. That's fruit, John says, that's in keeping with repentance. Um, that's how we welcome Jesus, he says. Real repentance changes us. We're not, we're not perfect in it, but we should be in process. We should be changing. And so this morning, is change detectable in your life to someone who knows you? Say, if I go back a year or two, would they say, you've changed? You've changed. If I went back five years, would people who know you said, yeah, they've changed? They're more generous. They're more caring. They're more sensitive to people in need. Would they say that about you? If I looked at your Venmo transactions, could I tell that you were generous to people in need? See, there is a king that's coming, John says, and you need to ready yourself and repent of your sins precisely because, as we'll see in just a couple minutes, he's coming as a judge of the hearts of men. John's message, I want you to make sure you don't miss this, it's not just for the people back then. It has tremendous relevance for us too. The nearness of the king and his kingdom didn't fade away and become irrelevant when Jesus died and returned to heaven. Jesus promised to come back yet again. And the idea of being ready for that coming is just as fitting for you and me today as it was for the Jews in, in John's day. Jesus himself would pick up on John's exact message, and he too calls people to repent. In Matthew chapter 4, from that time it says, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would say of his future coming, Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So his second coming has the same sense of urgent nearness for us as the first coming did when John was preaching. We too should be quick to truly repent so we can be ready to welcome him. Look down at verse 9 with me. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the crowds are coming out to John, some say by the thousands, and John greets them with these words of welcome. You brood of vipers, right? Our, our priority for the church this, this year is to receive the welcome of Christ and share it with others. So we're going to start the services with that, this phrase, you welcome, you brood of vipers. It's a very welcoming kind of thing. Welcome, snake spawn. You know, I mean, this is... Some say that what John means there is hearkening back to the garden and the serpent who was Satan. And he's saying, you are children of the devil. 
Um, these are strong words of rebuke. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I want to make sure we, we don't miss that. John says, wrath is coming, and Jesus is the one bringing it. The New Testament paints a picture of the fullness of the wrath of God coming at the return of Jesus in the future by Jesus' own hand. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, his letter. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus, the wrath bringer. This is definitely not Sunday school Jesus that John is teaching us about. So he warns the people, don't even begin to say to yourselves, don't even think, he says, to say, but we have Abraham as our father. He says, God is able to raise stones Raised from these stones, children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So some people seem to think that they really didn't need all this fruitful repentance stuff because they were children of Abraham. They were part of God's chosen people. They had a good spiritual pedigree. But John says their presumption that they're good, that all is well with them, is to their great peril. They think they're secure because they're Jews. They're God's chosen people. And so they have no, re no need to repent. Repentance was for other people outside of their group. They already had their ticket punched. They were good. There used to be a website, mercifully it doesn't exist anymore, um, called Heaven's Registry. And for $20, it offered guaranteed admission into heaven. For another 15 bucks, you could guarantee the admission of your treasured pet. Um, but that website promised that with this 100% guaranteed heavenly admission certificate, there would be no need for confessions or penance anymore. And that sounds silly, but that can become our silliness if, if, we presume that spiritual, our spiritual security is based on anything other than fruitful repentance and faith in Jesus alone. Sometimes we could be tempted to think, but I've been baptized. I attend church. I put money in the box on my way out. I gave to that Gen 12 thing. I, I read through the Bible in a year, more or less. I went on a mission trip. I even served in children's ministry. I'm a student at the seminary. For gosh sakes, I must be good. Surely I don't need to repent. But John warns us, don't presume that you're in a repentance-free zone because of what you have done or what group you belong to. There's no such thing as a repentance-free zone. All who would be ready for the king who is coming near 
must repent of our sins and turn to God for grace in Christ. All of us, pastors, professors, homemakers, programmers, all of us. And John is extraordinarily bold in this matter. He's uncompromising in the face of massive crowds and the religious leaders of the day. He's going to give his life for this. We don't have time to deal with this morning, but he's, he's going to give his life because he calls the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day to repentance. Repent of your unbelief and turn to the coming king for mercy, producing fruits in keeping with your repentance, John says. And John tells us this is some kind of amazing king who's coming. Look down at verse 15. It says as the people were in expectation, they were expecting God's king, the Messiah, to come. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, he might be that king. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John, whom Jesus would later call the greatest man ever born of a woman, so the greatest man who's ever been born says he knows that this coming king is so much greater that he's not worthy to even untie his sandals. I think you get the idea of that, but it's, it's a really rich um, symbol that they're using here because back in the day, um, disciples um, of teachers were kind of almost like their servants or their slaves. This is a key principle we've adopted in the internship here at North Wake. Right? Um, but even those disciples were not required to untie their servants or their masters, their mentors' sandals. That was too low a task for them. That was too low a task even for a Jewish servant. It was reserved for foreign slaves to do that task. And John, who's the greatest man on earth, according to Jesus, says he's not even worthy to do the lowest task, reserved for the lowest of slaves for this mighty king who comes. And it's John's understanding of the greatness of Jesus that allows him to so get the rightness of repentance before the coming king. Repentance is humility before Jesus in action. And I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus doesn't say John is so great is because he's so humble before Jesus. And so this great coming king he comes in judgment. John makes that abundantly clear. Verse 9, we read, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17, he writes of the coming king, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is judgment language. And if this is what Jesus is bringing with him, judgment and wrath, then we had better be ready, right? We had better repent. And I, let's be honest, nobody likes to repent, right? It seems like a miserable experience 
Uh, it can be degrading, exposing, humiliating. We look forward to repentance like we look forward to going to the dentist. And so we try to manage our sin rather than repent of it. And so we come up with all kinds of strategies to deal with our sin. We, we blame others for it. We, we shirk it, the responsibility for it. We pledge we'll never do it again. We compensate by doing other good things. We try to forget about it. Anything but repenting. But John says we must repent. If not, we face the very real prospect of standing before this king who's come as the judge of all the earth with his winnowing fork in his hand as we cling to our porn and our bitterness and our greed in our hands. And I don't want that to happen to you. And God does not want that to happen to you either. And so he offers repentance to us, not as some degrading thing, but as a gracious, life-giving, freedom-yielding gift. This is why Luke says this amazing thing about all this repentance talk that John the Baptist has been doing. Down in verse 18, he calls it good news. He says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Fruitful repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the very best of news. And when God offers you a chance to repent, and I hope you figured out now, by now, God is offering you a chance to repent this morning. He is offering you a precious gift that was bought at a great price. Luke's going to record in Acts chapter 5 for us these words. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' death and his resurrection and his exaltation all took place. Why? So you would have a chance to repent. He was mocked and beaten and spat upon and nailed to a tree to buy this gift of repentance for you and for me. And so, how will you receive that gift this morning? The gift of repentance from Jesus himself. You know, this gift comes to us really kind of in two waves, I would say. The first wave is unto salvation. That is, this is... This repentance helps you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, Mark is writing about John. He says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. And Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so this morning, God is offering you a chance to do that, to repent of not believing and all of the sins associated with it and believe the good news about Jesus. That he came and he died on the cross to bear your sins so you would not have to bear them anymore. And in just a moment, you'll have a chance to do that. But there's a second wave of repentance that comes to us and we could say that's unto sanctification or unto transformation. It causes us to grow as a follower of Jesus Repentance is for Christians as well. It's interesting, in, in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, 
we read written to the church, Jesus is speaking. He says, those whom I love, that is his church, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. We as the church are supposed to repent. If you're a follower of Jesus, is there an area that you're not following his teaching in? You should repent. Do you have a practice of daily confession and repentance of sin? You know, if you follow Jesus, I can't encourage you enough in that practice. It's how I try to end every day. I confess any known sin, and I thank God for his kindness and mercy that's greater than my sin. It's amazing how much better I sleep when that's the last thing I do each day, to confess my sin and welcome God's grace that's greater than my sin. And so I'd, I'd like to pause and pray. And then the worship team is going to come and they're going to sing over us. And this is a time for you to repent. To ask God what, what is in your heart or in your mind that, that he wants you to repent of. And so this is a chance for you to genuinely talk with God. And so let me pray for you about that and the worship team will lead us in that time. So if you would bow with me, let's pray. Lord, you know that I'm, I'm bad at repentance. I don't like it, and I, I forget about it. And, uh, but I can't, I can't live without it. And you know how desperately I need it. And I know how freeing it is when I welcome it. And Lord, that's what I want to pray for uh, the friends who sit before me this morning for the freedom of repentance from their sins that results in forgiveness. So Lord, in these next few minutes, in your kindness, bring to mind those things that they need to bring to you and confess and by your grace turn away from Lord, I especially want to pray for those who are here and this, this is their first time repenting. Never really done it in Christ before. And so they are coming to confess a life lived apart from you and welcome you as their Savior and Lord and live a life with you. So Lord, hear their prayers as they say yes to that this morning. Welcome them as your children, fully forgiven and free. So Lord, now have mercy on us and speak to us as your people whom you love, we pray.